You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 16, September 29th, 2016. Today's guest on the show is Ian McFarland, the CTO of Paratherapeutics, a venture-backed company based in San Francisco. Prior, he was also the chairman and founder of NEO, a services-oriented organization that taught agile practitioners. In addition, he was a CTO of Digital Garage and is a speaker and leader on agile, lean, and UX technologies. Ian, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. You have a long career, which I just glossed over in the introduction, that spans way before even the dot-com boom. So you've lived through multiple booms here in Silicon Valley. So what are some of the trends that you've seen that transcend the time of your long, successful career? You know, innovation culture is something that sort of grew up here in Silicon Valley. I mean, all the way back into the gold rush days, right? I mean, people came out here with the really bad idea of living out living wild and, and going to try to find gold because, you know, a bunch of really rich people came out of that. So we've always had that culture. And so I think that sort of culture of exploration and willingness to try things is something that's, that's really thematic across the industry. I mean, I was doing hypertext stuff before there was a web. So um, what did that you know, look like? Oh, my God. So <laughs> this is back when I was working for Ted Nelson at Autodesk, you know, the guy who invented the term hypertext in 1965, which people don't realize. You know, we we're going to build this crazy worldwide distributed hypertext system, you know, with computer networks and stuff. And like, that was kind of a crazy idea. I'm not sure that could ever work. But uh, and, and honestly, it didn't work. Right. I mean, because at the same time, you know, slightly later, Tim Berners-Lee started working on uh, the World Wide Web. And yeah, so I, in any case, like, and this sort of brings up a theme for me. One of the things I think that we see is that there are sort of emergent properties of how how things work in the world. Like we, you know, Ted had come up with this idea and it had legs because it was a good idea, not because he invented it. So that's something that I've seen as a consistent theme is uh, sort of a desire to, to do things in a better way um, that sort of pervades internet culture and startup culture. There's a willingness to challenge assertions of how it's always been uh, and really try to figure out how to do what we do in a way that's, that's better, uh, more thoughtful, produces better results, is more responsive, is more, has shorter cycle time. Well, I like how you think back to the gold rush. It seems that the kind of culture of risk-taking and experimentation, which is what you really describe as being th very thematic in here in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years or so, uh, really goes back 150, 175 years to the gold rush. Yeah, it goes from there straight to, you know, we had the railroad barons. I mean, there's also this theme of toolmakers versus, versus mass 
doers, right? Like you had the, you know, the people, the, the companies that are still around from that era are, are not gold mining up. Op- I guess there are. Hearst is still around from, you know, they own gold mines from back in that era. But, um, but you have things like Levi Strauss, right? I mean, that's a classic San Francisco company that grew up as a service provider to the folks doing stuff in the space. You know, there's kind of Slack is kind of the modern Levi Strauss, if you will. How, how, how so? Is it because they are servicing the gold rush of today? Absolutely, right? They, they, they're, doing so, they're, they're supporting these, transform, these startups. I mean, obviously, Slack is going to have legs well outside the startup space, but you have these early adopter communities, and they have tools that they use. I mean, Pivotal Tracker is another good example. You know, when, you know as at Pivotal, we needed a tool for ourselves that we could use for agile planning, and it, turns in, it turned out to be a very big thing in the space. Um, and honestly, Pivotal was better known as a, the provider of Pivotal Tracker for many years before, uh, before people realized that we were actually always a consultancy. And so this idea of risk-taking and, and being able to start a company in a garage and not, not getting permission to do things, I think, is very, very deep here. Plus, we have you know, universities that grew out of that same culture. You have like Leland Stanford putting money into Stanford University, obviously. Um, he's, he came out of... The, the first wave, right? Like this was the gold rush and the railroads that drove the first wave. Right. People don't realize that Stanford's uh, strength today is engineering and, you know, things like that. But back when it first opened, it was geology and, and mining and things like that. And it produced a president, right, Herbert Hoover, and his, his major was geology, as was his wife. So we've been, we've been m- mentioning several different industries, Ian. Uh, one thing that resonates with me, uh, with respect to your background, is is your influence on the federal government and and the government in general. I've worked with several different agencies like the IRS and Treasury and Federal Reserve Bank and such. So, talk to us about some of your experience with the White House and and the consulting you've done there. But what's exciting about it, doing this at the federal level to me is the idea that you can take these principles and and apply them at scale and get massive results, right? I mean, I th- you look at, so I think sort of the classic story out of, out of the current White House, uh, and, you know, this is during Todd Park's administration as CTO, uh, is ACA, right? Like, and here you have the, the Affordable Care Act website that they spent $200 million on and it didn't work because they did it in the classic waterfall, safe, nobody gets fired for buying Microsoft way of... Like, let's get a bunch of really expensive organizations to build a really bent expensive stuff. And what could possibly go wrong? And it turns out what could possibly go wrong is, aside from spending $200 million on something that doesn't work, uh, we had a water, what I think is a watershed event in government where we had uh, a sitting secretary, Secretary Sebelius, lose her job because the technology didn't work. And that was, to me a really big wake-up call to people. It used to be that you sort of, the truism was, and I, I used to see this all the time when I was trying to sell people on Agile in big air quotes, this idea that, oh, well, we're going to do this because we're conservative and this, the old way always works, so we know that we're not taking a risk. We're, we're risk-averse, so we're going to do it the old way. What that showed was that the old way has massive inherent risk and that people are looking at the problem completely wrong by saying, oh, well, we'll just do it in this old way as though that in some way mitigated risk. So to me, that was in a lot of ways the watershed event. And that's also how, you know, that's where the U- U.S. digital service came about. Uh, that's where um, a lot of these programs that are trying to create a context in which you can do good agile process in government really started to get traction. Uh, 
It's not that people weren't doing it in government. Todd's always been a big advocate for lean. He, I, mean, I first met him when he came out to the, the, uh, the lean startup track at South by Southwest that we were sponsoring when I was, when I was running NEO. Um, the idea of bringing lean and agile thinking into government, that's been around. But there was a watershed event when, it, when something that high visibility happened that showed what failure really looks like in a waterfall project. One of the things that's really interesting that Todd talks about a lot is is this like when he talked about when he was still CTO he would talk about how his job eighty percent of it was myth busting right so I mean one of the big things was the was the the playbook that they put together the agile playbook that they put together which is available on the WhiteHouse.gov site um, that's really about telling people that it's okay to do these things, right? Like, there's when you asked a government person two years ago, can you do Agile? They'd say, like, no, you can't do Agile. You have to do this. Would they, you know, if you asked them, could you use Amazon Web Services? They'd be like, no, you can't do that. You have to use, like, these dedicated hardware, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these myths that, as far as anyone can tell, are not actually attributable to any source, right? Like, things that just everybody knows that happen to be false, and so, uh, like, really, he would say 80 to 90 percent of his job was going was going around and, and sort of finding when people were saying these things that weren't true and saying, no, actually, that's fine. You can do that. Giving people permission to do things that were sensible, that everybody knew were sensible, but that you thought you couldn't do in government. Um, you know, there was still a 10 percent that required some executive authority to do to make changes. And obviously, the bully pulpit of having the president call up the two different heads of the agencies and say, you know, actually, that thing where you're not where you're blocking each other from doing this thing, you should stop that and, and it'll work together. When the president calls you and you're, the, you, you probably listen. So that convening power was a big part of fixing problems. But then there's other stuff that took like congressional action, and that was the hardest part of the whole, the whole, the whole deal. Well, interesting is uh, I was doing some reading about Waterfall, and it said that the um, the guy who invented it said he was misquoted, and he he actually described Waterfall to be far more iterative. It was it was fascinating because, you know, this is about forty years, fifty years ago, but he actually was describing what you could look at. It would be the roots of an iterative design in Agile today. Yeah, no, it's the idea that somehow by doing all your planning up front, you can mitigate risk. I mean, the, you always know more later in the project. That's just the nature. Of you know, I talked earlier about emergent properties. It's one of the emergent properties of any project. It's not just software, but any project. The more you get into the material, the more you know. So you know, the idea of late binding to that information and making your decisions when you're the most informed is inherently obviously correct. Um, now, of course, there's a lot of things in waterfall that sound like they're inherently obviously correct. Like, well, we should get all the risk out at the least expensive time by by doing it in planning. And it's certainly true that you want to figure stuff out as cheaply as possible. And, but you do it, it's, it's so much easier to do in small increments as you go. And it's not to say that you don't have to be rigorous about getting things right, right? Like, is this also this notion that agile is sort of about not caring about quality and it's unrigorous. And the fact is a good agile process is incredibly rigorous and that's, in fact, it's about the most rigorous way you can develop software. I mean, just look at test-driven, right? A lot of these waterfall projects don't, you know, do all their testing at the end. And so the idea is you develop a bunch of stuff and then you catch where the defects were. Of course, by that point, you have so many, so many design details predicated on those wrong ideas that it's incredibly expensive to fix, even if you can find all the defects. And the other thing is, of course, software is an incredibly complex beast and 
you're never going to find all the defects. That's just in the nature that the, the combinatorial complexity of software is such that if you're not factoring things into small self-contained units and not using good object orientation or other techniques, you're going to end up with this big ball of mud style project that you, even if you did know where all the defects were, you'd never be able to fix them. Absolutely. And it, it boggles my mind sometimes how, how much of a surprise it is to people that agile is, you know, all about empirical process control and how it's getting back to really our human nature, right? Try something. If it doesn't work out, you know, try something else and so on. Small experiments. Right, right. It is a little bit mind boggling that people don't realize that, that, that large experiments are inherently more complex and risky than small experiments. And a series of small experiments, especially with good uh, testing rigor around them, are going to produce a small, well-crafted piece of code. Now, there's an argument that says, well, you know, in a, big, in a waterfall process, you can define everything and then you can get you know, less expensive developers to do work on it. And there's, there, there, honestly, there's some truth to that, but you, the quality of product that you get is not the same. Um, it is a more rigorous process. So it takes, it, it takes developers who are going to, you know, who are more rigorous, who are willing to write tests, who are willing to refactor and have a code base that's actually flexible enough to, to in order to be able to absorb new information late in the process. But the fact is, even if you don't, design your software that way, you still find out at the end that there's a problem and then you just have a much more complex problem to try to solve it. This is also why, in, what I've seen is that good agile projects have a much more linear cost of development, whereas uh, on a sort of traditional software development project, you end up with an exponential cost because the cost of change goes up at a, at a very rapid rate. Um, this is also why ma making sure to pay down code debt, code debt is a big theme for me trying to make sure that you that you pay down code debt as you're developing a project is absolutely critical and at some time this is one of these also one of these things that is hard sometimes for non-technical and even technical managers to get their arms around is why it's so important to keep the uh, to spend the time on improving the behavior of already existing code um, it's an area that I see people get sort of lost on all the time or where people forget to pay down the code debt and then they wonder why their their sort of their their cost of development keeps going up. Well, I remember about 10 years ago, something you something you were talking about just reminded me about 10 years ago I was on a panel about agile. We were talking about how you implement it and and one of the people said on the panel that agile works really really well except in highly regulated environments or high risk environments. And I just kind of think that that isn't true anymore. And I know that your, your role as CTO at Paratherapeutics, you're dealing with FDA approval, and you've told me that you're using Agile in that process. Um, I know you probably can't go super deep, but can you tell the audience as best you can how you're using Agile in that tightly regulated, very, very um, old-fashioned environment? The, the idea of doing, again, I'm a big advocate for developer testing, right? The idea of doing test-driven development or behavior-driven development, the idea of writing the test before you write the code to me is, is so powerful. But the idea that you would want to make a medical device and not have automated tests verify that the behavior of every piece of code in your system, to me, is just mind-boggling. Like, it's really frightening to me, the idea. It's really frightening to me, the idea that, that like, airplane control systems are not always test-driven, right? They're, we're talking about really massively complex systems. I think there should be regulation that insists that any, any piece of software that it has a life-critical function is test-driven. Um, 
and maybe so in the in the frame of agile next maybe that's where we end up going where certain where we re recognize the power of this this tool and require something that's it doesn't have to be test driven but something that's at least that effective you have to you should be you should have to demonstrate that you have a code quality that is such that uh, that no adverse behavior can happen and the only way to do that obviously there's still you still will have missing test coverage you'll still have places in any human developed system, there's still going to be gaps where you have uh, behavior that you didn't account for, but it's very rare to have significant behavior of that class when you're actually testing everything, and especially when you're testing, making assertions about the behavior before you even write the code. So to take that back to the next level and talk about how it happens in a, in a regulated space, I'll sort of go back to a little bit what Todd was part, talking about with, with how a lot of myth busting. There's this notion that you can't do Agile because the FDA expects you to have uh, documents in a certain way. They, they're used. To, I mean, I'll be honest. They're very used to looking at waterfally documents. So, and I and I'll say we're being conservative the first time we go to the FDA in terms of how this documentation looks to make sure that you know we don't want to create additional risk around the documents. And it's a bunch more work for us, but. Um, Honestly, part of the reason that I took this job is because I was really excited about the opportunity to take what I know about Agile and apply it to a highly regulated frame. And there are going to be challenges. There's going to be tensions between uh, documentation requirements and, uh, and, and how we do our work. But the bigger challenges are going to be around perceptions of ex and expectations around what constitutes a well-documented, rigorous design. And the fact is... Um, so we've started, I'll come back to what the fact is, uh, that we started from the frame of uh, how, do I, how do I get my team effective? I, when I came into this organization, uh, there were a bunch of team challenges around, we're having, as, as often happens when you bring an agilist into an organization, uh, especially in a senior management role, you find that there's a lot of friction, a lot of heat being generated in the system, but not very much light, right? Like there's a lot of uh, project work that's stuck or where people are not communicating effectively or where feed lab, feedback loops are broken or where code quality is not where it needs to be. So the first thing was just how do I get this team to be highly effective as a team? Uh, and honestly, when I first came in, I thought there was going to be a lot more change of team required to get there. But the fact is a lot of it was just friction in the system. And so, you know, the first thing was just getting down to basics and getting like getting a good continuous build in place and getting starting being rigorous about testing. Um, we ended up pretty quickly getting to the point where we did a, a rewrite of the core system uh, that was all test driven. Code quality went up astronomically. Uh, we'd actually reduced the team size by about half uh, in the first two months that I was here. Um, but the velocity of the team increased by about a factor of 10. I mean, one of the things that I realized early was that we were going to have to have a bunch of structure around uh, change management, right? And so having structure around change man management is different than having friction around change management. It was critical in trying to marry the benefits of an agile process to this regulated space that we maintain the agility of the process and ma maintain the code flexibility. Uh, and so the implication then is then we just have to be really transparent and traceable. And there's nothing antithetical to Agile about that. You want good rigorous traceability and you want transparency around everything. It, you want lower ceremony, 
but you want to be able to sort of understand the flow of everything through the system. So the first place we started was just, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to have, uh, you know, we pair programs so we have continuous uh, code review in that sense, but we also uh, needed traceability to see that the, the design controls were maintained. So we're using Pivotal Tracker for our agile planning tool. They were already using that when I got here, ironically, uh, or not ironically, un maybe unsurprisingly. Um, but we're using that as our core planning tool. But then for traceability, we, we need all check-ins to have a story ID so that we know what the acceptance criteria were that drove the story. And we have traceability all through the system. Everything's done in a, in a, in a pull request. Uh, every pull request is signed off by a different developer from the person who submitted it. So we have all these checks and balances. We have continuous uh, integration at each of these steps. We merge into master and things in master get put onto demo and then people can go, like product po folks go look at what we built and say, yes, that story passes. So we have all these checks and balances already built into our system. And they're actually much more rigorous than most change control systems. Most, most QMSs, they talk about these same things, right? They talk about, did this change control happen? But it doesn't, but it's an externality and it doesn't happen on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we have instead, in, at, at Pair, we have this system where we have incredible rigor around, uh, basically every line of code is traceable to a requirement. And it's traceable in real time, and that doesn't mean it's inflexible because we can make a new requirement and change it. And we have document change control because we have the whole document history. So, so much of what we've been doing is, is right at, at the initial stage is around just trying to get that process so that we have all the documentation, just as basically as data exhaust coming out of the system. Yeah, it sounds like you're also all that documentation is helpful when you're dealing with the regulators because you said you had to kind of work hard to get some of this documentation into a very waterfall approach. It seems like you probably have the ability to copy and paste and and rejigger some of the documentation backwards. Absolutely. So just for example, our uh, validation verification, right? Like we have to do a, it is required that we do this big QA pass. You know, I'm used to like internet startup. I mean, I've done stuff that's not this, but like I'm used to so the internet startup style of QA is the product manager looks at it and says, yes, that's what I wanted. And the tests catch the defects. And that's fine in a non-healthcare environment. Here we have a, f a much more formal QA pass at the end. But the intent is that the QA pass is, a, is another second check. Everything should already pass at that point. So just getting like the automated test output into the VNV report and getting that all packaged up so that we have this artifact, that's all legitimate, right? Like there's a real audience for that. It's valuable for the FDA to say, yes, you're doing something that's not life-threatening and that you've done, that you were exhaustive in making sure that the software works, works the way it's supposed to. And so I think one of the things that we're taking is a different approach. A lot of Silicon Valley is like, FDA, why do we need that? And then you find things like, you know, Lumos Labs getting a lawsuit from the FTC. That's been, you know, it's been scoped down to just a $2 million fine instead of the 50 plus it was originally. Or, or 23andMe. Yes, 23andMe is another great example. You know, in a, even if we could thumb our nose at the FDA, we wouldn't because we actually think there's a valuable regulatory function happening in the FDA. Like we're talking about people's health and people's safety. Those are really important things. And we don't want to subvert that at all. And in fact, what we're trying to do, and one of the things that got excited me about coming here is we're trying to make that process better. We're trying to make it lightweight, you know, easy and comfortable from a, from a process perspective so that developers can just do what developers love to do, which is produce great code, and do it in a way that's low friction. 
the next phase for me is then to help, like one is to sort of get more of that automated, more of that document generation automated, but ultimately to sort of change the discussion with FDA and other regulators about how what the right things to be asking. Yeah, and there seems to be this common myth that you you can't do anything on the engineering side until the entire culture is transformed and you've got the business on board and everything else. Uh, but as you've been discussing, you know, you can do all kinds of changes to engineering practices to improve traceability and um, and get quicker time to market with with the product. Absolutely. No, and I think that's a really it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think it helps for sure to have executive agreement. But the fact is, we all know, I mean, most of the people listening to this podcast, and if you don't, you should check it out. Um, we all pretty much know that Agile works really well, right? So part of it is just being smart about thinking about what are the small incremental steps that I can do that show gains. So for example, classic example, I mentioned that continuous build. We didn't have a continuous build when I got here. Uh, and it was taking a person day every day to build this one binary. Um, it took us longer than I would have liked to get to where we had a good continuous build. But there was an immediate relief when you take away that need to have a, a whole person day go into an administrative task. So by taking small steps that show immediate business value, there are always small steps that can be taken. Even coming in here, I had support from the executive team. Mostly the executive team knew that what was, working, what was happening before wasn't working right and we needed to, there was stuff that needed to be fixed. So that, that's always an easier frame. But even if that weren't true, doing things in a better way and then making it transparent what the benefit of those certain things is, that's a great way to build credibility within the organization. And, you know, I find that once people trust, when people develop trust in Agile because they see the results of Agile. Absolutely. And, and Ian, the premise of this show is, you know, it's called Agile Next. And so we ask all of our guests, you know, where do you think Agile is going in the future in the next year, couple of years, whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is it's becoming so pervasive now. And so a lot of it is sort of what are the new frontiers that haven't really been deeply touched by it? Like life sciences is a big space that has, is kind of new to it. Regulated spaces, government space, uh, you know, the IOT space there, everything that's new that hasn't been exposed to it is becoming touched by it. I also think that it's getting outside of, uh, outside of just development practices and into core business practices. I mean, I think like Eric's book was a big part of that. The lean startup really started to change the business thinking about lean and agile. But I also think there's a natural, like, I think there's always, there's always going to be a little bit of an ebb and flow between the impact of design and the impact of, uh, agility. I mean, this is, this has been a long time in development. This is something my last company, Neo was founded around this idea of trying to bring, uh, design and development together into one cohesive, um, productive, agile, uh, and evidence-based whole. Um, and I think we're still in the early days of that to some extent. I mean, I think it's, it's not like this trend is not played out. We don't see organizations across the board taking lean practices into their UX and experience side. I think that's kind of a big growth edge. Like in terms of you know, there are early adopters that have been doing this for years now, but in terms of like the early and late majority, like that's really where a lot of motion I think has to happen now. And we have to get better about being more evidence-based in our, in our design approaches, but not lose the, the 
impact of insight, right? I mean, I think one of the things that the pendulum swung way to the side of evidence-based only, and let's be honest, genetic algorithms are not a very fast or efficient way to design anything. I mean, how long did it take to make, like, orangutans? It was a long time. Uh, you know, if you had an idea for a better orangutan, maybe you could... I mean, that's what CRISPR is for, right? Like, you go, like, I'm going to make a much better orangutan. I have this idea. We're going to test it. You know, we're going to have a much faster cycle time. Uh, we're going to have a design insight, and then we're going to try it. And it'll still go probably terribly wrong, but eventually, you know, when they take over the Earth, we'll, and we're all beholden to our orangutan masters, you know, history is written by the winners, so it'll probably turn out for the best. Um, but the idea of having a design insight and, 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 but then challenging that with evidence, I think that's actually where the sweet spot in the UX world is around, around agility. Um, and I think that's still something that's, like, there are advocates, I've, I've been advocating it for years now, there are advocates that drive in that direction, but I think it hasn't really gotten the, the level of adoption that it needs to. Um, people still don't pair program enough and people still don't pair across disciplines enough. I think that's a, an obvious short-term win for folks. It's, it's not really next, cause, again, because people have been doing it for a little while, but I think it's not broadly adopted. Um, but it becoming mundane is, is, is a really good outcome. What are some of the things that are next for Ian over the, the second half of 2016? Some of the cool projects you're working on or if you're participating at any conferences in some remote corners of the world? Oh, yeah. Well, you should come to, to the next... Uh, uh, Silicon Valley to the Baltics conference. That's been great the last couple of years. It was in, in Latvia, in Riga last year, and then in, in, it had been in Vilnius the two years before that. So that's a good one. Um, I've been doing some stuff. I may be doing some stuff with the Hawaiian government coming up. That'll be nice. That's a, always a good place to go. Uh, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of government adoption and interest, right? I think so. And uh, I still, And I also think that, you know, one, one thing that's sort of growth edge is I, I, I still have been wanting to do this thing that I've proposed to the, to the feds around trying to do, use agile techniques as a training mechanism. One of the things that I know about pair programming is it's about the fastest way to learn anything. Um, so getting, like, that's one of the things we're looking at in, in one project is, is a way to sort of get a sort of agile training core together to, to get that skills transfer uh, into people. Because one of the biggest sort of economic problems that we face as a country is around uh, skill retraining and the, and the availability of talent and the availability uh, of jobs that are obviously in, you know, talent. How is it that we have, that it cost, that, it, that I can't find good developers in San Francisco? I can find them, but they all have jobs. That I can't find enough developers or enough designers in San Francisco. And all these smart people who used to make autos don't have the ability to get skills training to become uh, good developers. Like we have all these imbalances and I think like using agile techniques as a way to do skills training is actually, it's kind of a, a one of its secret powers that I would love to see exploited more. And I've been, it's, it's been a back burner thing for me for a number of years. I'd love to, I, I'm planning to do a little bit more of that. With Pair, I think just trying to get through, like get through our first submission, but then start to try to improve the process with FDA. That's a big thematic thing for me um, that I'm excited about. Um, and, you know, and I still enjoy starting, you know, talking to early stage companies and helping them figure out their, their stuff. Um, so more advising and that, that sort of thing. The usual, the usual stuff. It all sounds great. Well, uh, Ian, thank you for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. 
next week on Agile Next, we have Mitch Lacey, a certified scrum trainer from Seattle, Washington. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv. 